Welcome back to The Horse Race, your weekly look at politics, policy, and elections in Massachusetts. I'm Jennifer Smith, and I am here with Steve Cazella and Stephanie Murray. Today, if you haven't already seen on Twitter, is a very big deal. We have some bittersweet personal news. Stephanie, anything we should know? I hate to say it, but I am leaving the horse race um, because I got a new job. I got promoted at Politico. So this is my last week as the author of the Massachusetts Playbook. I'll soon be the author of Morning Score, which is our campaign's newsletter, like federal campaigns focused on the House, the Senate, the midterms, all of that. And Playbook is going to be in excellent hands. Uh, my friend and our friend of the pod, Lisa Kaczynski of the Boston Herald, formerly of the Boston Herald and now of the Politico Massachusetts Playbook, will take the reins of the newsletter on Monday, which is going to be fantastic. So I'm excited, but it's so bittersweet. I, I love the bunker. It's my home. Oh, and the bunker is really kind of a spiritual place, too, to be <laughs> honest, because we aren't literally in a bunker anymore. The bunker is in our minds. The bunker's in our hearts, I think. <laughs> the bunker's in our hearts. That's all right, fine. <laughs> Stephanie, but you're, you're moving to D.C., right? That's happening pretty soon? Yes, I am. I'm not sure what the timeline is going to be for my move yet, just because of COVID and everything being weird. But sometime this summer, I am moving to D.C. So luckily, the state is opening up bars and maskless outdoor things just to, to celebrate me leaving, which is, you know, a huge compliment. <laughs> that's, that's really nice. Like, if you got to go, you got to go outdoor tipsy. Um, but actually, I mean, that's a great segue, because as you note correctly, there's new mask guidance out from the CDC, the state and also different municipalities at different rates are kind of once again in a guideline easing state of mind. Uh, so you want to you want to you want to break it down for those of us who have gotten two jabs or just the one J&J &J jab? Can we go hug all of our loved ones again? So according to the CDC, if you're vaccinated, uh, you can go unmasked when you're outside in small groups or if you're biking or running. But if you're in like a big group with people you don't know, even outside, you should still be wearing a mask. And in Massachusetts, the outdoor mask mandate is going to uh, ease up a little bit starting on Friday. And then uh, Governor Charlie Baker rolled out this whole new slate of reopening guidance uh, that goes throughout the summer. I think most important to to us is that you can now sing indoors. Um, that was one of the fun, <laughs> the fun ones from the list. But really, uh, capacity is going to go up at large venues, amusement parks, and water parks can open at 50% uh, on May 10th. And then in August, it's going to be nightclubs, saunas, for some reason, ball pits. Uh, all of those places can open up, assuming there's no uh, new surge or anything like that. So we can have our horse race and next horse race live with karaoke at Chuck E. Cheese is what you're saying and still have be in compliance oh, with the state guidelines. <laughs> we are required. <laughs> I think that that's now an idea which needs to happen. Steve's going to be the lone podcast host on that one because Stephanie's going to run <laughs> off to D.C. and you can't get me near a ball pit. <laughs> <laughs> it is sort of funny that, that that ball pits is specified. I'm not really sure why that particular thing, like there's so many things to do inside and outside, but for some reason ball pits gets its own spot right there in the regulations. And they will be open in August. So we'll look forward to that for our next horse race live. Um, but of course, there's also big news happening in terms of all the elections that we're keeping track of. Jen, you've been keeping an eye on candidates for Boston mayor as they come in and out of the race. What's new this week? That's right. Well, it's funny because uh, the news this week is, in effect, no news. 
race. Uh, we were waiting to see, I think as Stephanie mentioned last week, the, the race finally kind of filling out in its final form. We are rapidly approaching the kind of do or die nominations paper stage. And one of the people that we were keeping an eye on is State Senator Nick Collins, who was contemplating a run. And he announced that he is officially not running for Boston mayor, which means that we have a demographically fascinating and unusual race this year because for once, not a single one of the announced candidates is a white man, which is not on brand for Boston. So that's fun. Yeah, not on brand for Boston at all. Of course, Kim Janey is the only mayor of Boston ever that is not a white man. So the fact that there are no white men even running uh, currently, that of course, the signature deadline hasn't hit yet. But at the moment, no white men even running is quite interesting, I think, for the for the race and the way that it's shaping up. Is that implying that you're going to possibly jump into the race, Steve, just to just to make sure you're all represented? <laughs> um, I think the fact that I don't live in Boston is probably <laughs> the major limitation to my becoming mayor of Boston. But if anybody wants to collect signatures for me, just le- for me, just let me know. <laughs> my question is if, you know, all of these uh, white guys are staying out of the mayor's race because, you know, they're kind of reading the room. It does feel like the energy in Boston is trending towards electing a person of color, obviously that's going to happen now. But the other thing that I think is in the back of a lot of people's minds is that congressional seat uh, that Congressman Steve Lynch holds. There have been, you know, rumors and speculation forever that he could get picked as postmaster general by President Joe Biden if, you know, things move over there. So that might be kind of something that some local politicians in Boston and elsewhere are thinking about when they're they're making their calculations. And of course, in the background, you've also got it's not just the mayor's race that's that's happening in Boston. You've also got a an extremely busy at-large council race. Tons of districts are now open. Um, so people who are looking to kind of start making their stamps on the municipal political landscape in Boston are still definitely going through all the normal channels to get to that. But yes, I'm, I'm pretty sure there's a bunch of people watching for a potential domino effect if Steve Lynch were to leave and someone who held an existing seat were to go and try and run for that congressional seat, and whether or not that would then open up a potential storm for whatever seat that person previously held. So as usual, watching for the ripple effects. Speaking of domino effects, Steve, I feel like you just have to read your tweet because it was so funny about a certain (laughs) constitutional officer and his decision to maybe run for re-election. We don't know yet. That's right. So what we learned this week was that we don't know for sure whether Massachusetts Secretary of State Bill Gavin will be running for re-election. But as I noted on Twitter, uh, Massachusetts Secretary of State Bill Galvin, who's been in office since, since he was first elected Secretary of State of the Plymouth Colony in 1631, has not decided whether to run for another term per State House News. Um, just a bit of bit, bit tongue in cheek there for those who get all of their technical and historical news from the horse race that this is not actually historically, factually, perfectly accurate. But in spirit, I think it captures how long Bill Galvin has been in office. Yeah, he is looking at whether or not he's going to be running for an eighth term. So, you know, it wasn't, in fact, uh, back in Plymouth days, but he has been in office since 1995 and only gotten two primary challenges in that entire time, one in 2006 from constitutional law attorney John Bonifaz and again in 2018, which was pretty recent, from Boston City Councilor Josh Zakem. 
I mean, look, he's he's a hard one to shake, I guess. You know, he got even back in 2018, which many people viewed as kind of the most plausible challenge from Zakem toward Galvin. Uh, Galvin still got about 68% of the vote in both the primary and the general election. So I, I good luck, I guess, if he runs again and anyone wants to run against him. It's an uphill climb. Yes, there certainly are people who are rumored to be looking at a seat. You know, he'll be 72 years old on Election Day 2022. So, you know, but he has not given any indication, again, whether or not he's he's potentially interested in running. The thing that our polling found back in 2018 was actually that particularly older voters are actually quite familiar with Bill Galvin in numbers that were higher than I expected. You know, the Secretary of the Commonwealth is not a particularly high profile office, but when it comes to Bill Galvin, he's just been around for so long. And, you know, his name is on many things. He's on pieces of mail that you get. He's on the voter guide. He puts his name on every web page or, you know, piece of communication that comes out of his office. And over time, that seems to have worked. Um, so Josh Jacob, uh, I think, really did find that he was facing a surprisingly steep climb when he took on Bill Galvin in 2018. Speaking of high profile, though, Stephanie, you had some fun news in Playbook about a post that we talked about a little bit uh, a little bit ago, which is the U.S. attorney slot that is now open. What do we have going on there? There is always something moving and shaking in Massachusetts politics. Always, always. So district attorney, Suffolk County district attorney Rachel Rollins is in the final stages of uh, the U.S. attorney search. We've known this for a while. Uh, It was reported, I think, by The Globe in maybe January or February that she was in the top four for this seat. Um, And it seems like she's moving along in the process. There was a a tweet, like a fake news kind of tweet that went around Twitter a week or two ago saying that she was leaving office and that city councilor Michael Flaherty would be the next DA. And she quickly, you know, squashed that uh, within an hour or so. But um, according to my reporting, it came up when she uh, was on a call with State Representative Russell Holmes and others. They asked her about it and said, you know, DA, what's going on here? Like, are you still in the running? What's happening? And she said, yes, it's real. Um, It's not final yet, but things are definitely moving along. So what Holmes and others are concerned about is who the next DA is going to be already. Before uh, she even moves on, they're worried about who's going to fill that spot and who might, you know, step in with the similar agenda to Rollins. Uh, And so the the person that um, Holmes told me he'd like to see in that role is Rasan Hall from the ACLU of Massachusetts. Uh, So, you know, before even any of this is official, like that's already happening. Was there any truth to the the Michael Flaherty part of that tweet? I know it seemed to be in her pushback that that was the thing that she was most strongly sort of pushing back against. Was there any further discussion or any more detail on how that piece came up or was that just completely made up out of thin air? He's certainly, um, you know, considered a contender for it. What would happen is Governor Charlie Baker would appoint somebody to serve out the rest of the term, and then it would be on the ballot, I think, in 2022. Um, The Globe did a story on this yesterday where they uh, pointed out that she's undergoing FBI background checks and that there are others kind of looking at the role, including Danny Mulhern, who's in her office. Uh, So, you know, no chosen candidate or anything like that. Yet what Rollins said in her tweet was that the governor asks for the opinion of the outgoing DA when this happens. So uh, it seems like her opinion will have a pretty big bearing on this. Uh, At the same time, Rollins and Baker have had a pretty strained relationship during her tenure. 
All right. Well, lots to keep an eye on in terms of who's running for what. Um, but we have to ask the question that we always like to ask here on the horse race. And we only have two more times to ask with Stephanie Murray on this podcast. Stephanie, what are we doing here today? First, we are going to talk about redistricting, which is nerd Christmas, as one of my colleagues at Politico <laughs> pointed out to me, if Christmas only came once every 10 years. And then we're going to talk about gun regulation with friend of the pod, Sarah Betancourt, uh, a reporter for Law 360. All right, let's go, shall we? I'll say it. Giddy up. (laughs) (laughs) New data from the 2020 census is out this week. Some states' congressional seats will change as a result, because it's redistricting season, but Massachusetts will in fact keep the same nine. There's a lot to unpack here, given the uproar around the census in 2020 that we've discussed in the past, but let's start with what this particular data represents and where we are in the redistricting process. Steve, feel like getting us started here? Yeah, let's do it. So this, what we saw this week is the state-level data, which basically just gives you the top-level read at, as to how many people live in each state, and as a result, how many congressional seats and how many, very importantly, electoral votes each state will have based on how many people live live in each one. So there's a lot more data to come. It'll kind of be stretched out throughout the year where we'll get uh, more demographic details later on this summer. You know, that particularly will help when we actually get to the process of redistricting, just to be sure that, you know, communities can be kept together that should be together. Communities of interest can kind of work together to elect their own members to the state legislature, to Congress and so forth. Um, but all we have right now is just the raw number of how many people actually live in the in each state. As you said, Jen, uh, Massachusetts has kept our nine congressional seats, as was pretty much expected, not a foregone conclusion, but pretty much much expected. Um, but Stephanie, I know you've also been keeping track of who of what other states have gained and lost seats. So what's going on in the rest of New England and around the country? This is the first time in quite some time that New England is not losing a congressional seat. Massachusetts lost one back in 2010, and other states uh, over the years have lost them too. Uh, There was a lot of attention on Rhode Island uh, because uh, it was estimated that Rhode Island would lose one of its two congressional seats, which would have been quite awkward because the two members of Congress would have had to, you know, figure out who it was going to be. But that did not happen. Um, I think everyone's going to groan when I say that Rhode Island made a calamari comeback. Um, and then- <laughs> Stephanie. <laughs> and then um, in other parts of the country, uh, New York lost a congressional seat. Um, and according to the census officials, if, you know, the state had 89 more people in it, they would have kept... Uh, that congressional seat. So it shows you how how important uh, the census and the census count can be. And so in other parts of the country, there were some surprises. Texas only gained two congressional seats. Uh, They thought they were going to gain more. And one of the stories that's kind of emerging here is that uh, the Sunbelt counts weren't as high as expected, leaving Latinos to wonder if they were counted in the census last year. And that, I think, is a really important point to raise because in past conversations we've had around this, it involved sort of I guess, how do you put this, just a really messy process around how the 2020 census was unfolding, where uh, the data was delayed a little bit already. There was a pandemic. I don't know if you've noticed we're still in the middle of, and that delayed the counting and kind of interrupted it in places. And then additionally, there was the kind of question of whether or not Donald Trump's plans and statements about whether or not certain populations shouldn't be counted at all was having a chilling effect on responsiveness. So 
I'm sure we're going to end up seeing a lot more post-mortems. I'm sure we'll see more of that. But for now, obviously, the, the big question for us is we're keeping nine. But what are they going to look like? Are we going to start gerrymandering? Well, Jen, funny you should ask, because actually, since it's Massachusetts, it would be gerrymandering. <laughs> Every 10 years, <laughs> reminded me. traditional our, about it. <laughs> our uh, once every 10 year opportunity to be smarter than the rest of the country and, and remind everybody that it was Elbridge Gary and not Jerry that, that originally was the namesake of the term, I guess, gerrymandering. Um, no, seriously, uh, you're right. You're spot on with it, with the, um, just the summary of everything that happened last last year, though, and the reasons that it, that it was delayed. Um, of course, one of the major ways that the census is conducted is just a house to house count. You know, for the people who don't self report or respond to the census on their own, you know, enumerators are sent out to actually you know knock on the door or find the person that was missed, and that's obviously much harder and was delayed significantly because of the pandemic. Then the Trump administration tried to cut short the that time, the follow-up time, and there were court cases about that. So all in all, basically, we just got the numbers, which in a normal year would be expected more in late December. Um, that delays a whole bunch of things, not least of which is the process of redistricting. You know, we've got elections that were supposed to be based on these new maps coming up in just about a year and a half. This may be one time where the fact that we have such a late primary is good, I guess, because you know, we might actually have our maps done by then. But I think some of the states, particularly those that have their state level primaries much earlier next year, figuring out how they're going to do redistricting and, you know, getting all the data in time to draw these districts and then actually run campaigns in them is, I think, going to be a real challenge. And of course, we still don't have all of the numbers. Um, Data on age and race and other demographic stuff is not out yet and probably won't be until the summer or even September. Uh, So, you know, there's not a whole lot that states can do even with these numbers that just came out. Yeah. And and when, of course, we're talking about how exactly this shifts on the local level, that has to do with where populations were moving within the state. That means if you're trying to hit this certain level of how many people are supposed to be inside any one of these congressional districts, you can end up with some interesting imbalances. For instance, what we were seeing with Rep. Stephen Lynch's district is he's about 40,000 or so people over what his district is supposed to have. But then if you move over to the West in Richie Neal's district... They're about 40,000 short, but I don't know if you've noticed, but it's pretty hard to draw a straight line from Boston to Springfield that doesn't end up looking pretty comical. So, I mean, it's it's going to be, I think, a bit of a head scratcher as to how you balance out not just where the populations are landing, but also taking into account that there are other priorities. Um, Those who are in charge of the redistricting effort have said they want to make sure that they're keeping, for instance, the Massachusetts 7th Congressional District as a majority-minority seat. Um, And to do that, it means that you do have to be kind of careful about where you're drawing the lines around it. So, Stephanie... What have you been keeping an eye on and how these discussions seem to be unfolding at the moment? I mean, it's still pretty early. Um, and what I would say is that, you know, regardless of how these districts are end up being redrawn, it's pretty difficult to see, you know, one of them tipping towards a Republican, like what we kind of think of when we think of gerrymandering, or I should say gerrymandering. But the way that they draw these districts is going to have 
a very big impact on who can win them over the next 10 years, obviously. So, I mean, is it a district that's going to skew more towards a moderate? Is Are these districts going to lend themselves more to a progressive primary challenger? Those are all big questions that, uh, you know, will be answered over the next, I mean, few months, hopefully, if they can get all these numbers out and get it done. Fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah, and one other, just one other thing to keep an eye on at the state level is, of course, the uh, the legislative districts. You know, the congressional districts are obviously the the, the real headline. Um, you know, to, to see how those shake out. We don't have to draw anybody out like we did in 2010. You know, 2010, of course, was the year we went from 10 districts down to nine, which of course creates. Some, much more difficult backroom politics when you have to draw two reps into the same district. But uh, this time, exactly as you've both said, just shifting the congressional balance around certainly will be a challenge. Um, But the state legislative districts also, you know, there you've got the opportunity to draw many more districts that conform to different potential goals. And how those are done, I think it will be very interesting. Do you see, for instance, where you've got bits of gateway cities carved off with, you know, a lot of suburban voters, you know, sort of counterbalancing the gateway city residents, for instance. Those are the kinds of things that that once we get to the process of actually drawing districts will be the kinds of things to really keep a close eye on. And look, there are political implications aside from whether or not we put a current rep out onto an ice flow somewhere, because redistricting has in the past uh, actually resulted in a past speaker of the Massachusetts House going to prison. So we're all watching pretty carefully. There's a lot of opportunity for kind of low-level corruption to find its way into how we determine who is representing us in the local legislature. So, you know, everyone keep your eyes peeled. Keep a watch out. (laughs) After mass shootings in Atlanta, Boulder, and South Carolina, President Biden called gun violence in this country an epidemic and an international embarrassment. Today's guest explored Massachusetts' track record of low rates of gun violence through interviews with a nonprofit founder who's in part responsible for those low numbers. Sarah Betancourt, welcome back to The Horse Race. Thank you for having me. So you wrote about this for The Guardian, and you started off with a pretty uh, jarring statistic. 19,380 people died from gunshots in 2020. Um, and that's all the more shocking considering most of us spent the year uh, at home. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was really a shock to me, too. But I mean, it seems as we've returned to normality in the past few months, including at the end of 2020, with that normality has come mass shootings. It was remarkable, though, to read that Massachusetts has the lowest rate of death by guns as any state. Um, talk, us, talk, if you would, about some of the reasons behind that. You looked into some of the reasons and the kind of the regulations and the history that's brought us to that point. So there's so many ways to cut gun data. Um, and one of those ways is a very obvious one, gun deaths. And Massachusetts has been pretty low, the lowest in the country even, on gun deaths for, for several years now. And part of that is in part by stringent uh, gun policies, gun regulation policies. So there's this nonprofit called Stop Handgun Violence. And for the past 20 years, they, along with Massachusetts state legislators, have been pushing for sensible gun reform. Um, And they've managed to pass that with Republican and Democratic governors. Um, Everything from requirements for licensing, uh, registration, background checks, uh, the assault ban that was in place 
federally until the early 2000s is still in place in Massachusetts. Um, so you can't actually sell assault weapons here. And one of the things, of course, that is always tied up in the question of what we mean when we talk about gun deaths is that it's not just people shooting other people, but that what you often see is when gun restrictions or uh, or gun control measures go into place is you also see a drop in suicide rates. That That happened here as well, isn't it? The drop in suicides you could actually see correlate with stricter gun policies because there's a waiting period to get a gun. There's a background check to get a gun. You can't just make a spur of the moment decision to pick up a gun and end your life. And as a result, that has led to lower suicides, not just in Massachusetts, but in other states that have implemented similar regulations. And can you talk a little bit about John Rosenthal from Stop Handgun Violence, who's been kind of uh, a catalyst for a lot of this, uh, you know, a lot of gun regulations? Um, He owned this parking garage in 1994 and heard that there were these really crazy statistics about kids and gun violence. And he thought, well, here's a method to try to change public policy. So over the years, I mean, he sort of aligned himself with legislators and was able to pass some of these reforms. And he has the most intriguing stories. Like he actually met with uh, deceased Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia before he ruled on that major gun case. Um, He ran into him at dinner and and they talked gun policy and he was actually able to shift this conservative minded justices thoughts on policy. Um, he's also, you know, reached across the, the aisle to pretty significantly conservative gun makers, um, Smith and Wesson, of course, Smith and Wesson has sort of shirked and bucked his, uh, his pleas for, for policy help, but he has seen significant progress in Massachusetts. You made a very interesting point in the article about why uh, Smith and Wesson has not taken some of the steps that Rosenthal has recommended as far as like making guns so that they could only fire with if they were being held by the owner and so forth, um, specifically tort reform, which I thought was not at all where I was expecting that kind of limitation to go. What was that? What was behind that? How? What does one have to do with the other? Well, my understanding, we didn't really go into too much detail on tort reform, but the idea is that if Smith and Wesson in the late 90s had taken part in these significant gun regulations and restrictions, they would have been sued for not having implemented them earlier. And that's something that the former head of the organization wanted to avoid. And then once he actually came out in favor of some lighter gun restrictions, that's when the NRA decided to boycott the company and leadership changed and they began making our AR-15s sort of incessantly at that point. Yeah, I do think it's kind of important as well to help people frame what we're talking about when we're talking about like the level of gun production and gun ownership in Massachusetts. There was a state auditor's report in 2017 that was looking at how well local licensing authorities were doing at meeting their statutory benchmarks for how fast they should process permits. And, you know, in the period between 2014 and 2016, they approved 
105,266 just kind of personal permits, personal licenses to carry. So there are a lot of people who have licenses to carry here. And also, as you noted in, in your article, you know, Massachusetts makes more firearms at Smith & Wesson and Springfield Armory and other smaller companies than any other state, even though many of the types of guns produced in those uh, environments are not legal to use in Massachusetts. Right. Um, and the interesting thing about local authorities being able to take more ownership over that licensing that happened in 2014 under Deval Patrick. And that's something Stop Handgun Violence also had a role in. But the, the mentality is local police departments will have some sort of record of has this person had a police officer stop by three times in the past year for domestic violence? Like, does this person have a criminal record? they really seem to know their communities best. And that was sort of the mentality of passing that legislation and that statute. Now on the assault weapons, it is really interesting that here you have Gun Valley as Rosenthal calls it in Western Massachusetts and the Connecticut River Valley where all these significantly dangerous weapons are being made, but you can't sell them in Massachusetts. Um, and that's something that's sort of been a thorn in the side of many legislators over the past few years. So there was actually a piece of legislation introduced about a week ago um, that would ban manufacturing of, of that type of firearm um, in Massachusetts. Do you think that that bill has a chance of passing? Like, I think about a lot of the gun reform that's passed on Beacon Hill over the past few years, and it's usually, you know, it comes right after a major event, like the the red flag bill uh, that passed after the Parkland shooting a few years ago. Um, this one was filed after, uh, you know, the uh, increase in mass shootings that we've seen at the beginning of this year. Do, do you think that this manufacturing bill has a chance at making it through? Honestly, I'm not sure. I, I would have to see where Baker stands on it because a lot of the people who were in office in 2014 um, and in 2017 when those bills passed would probably support this one. Um, but I think there would need to be significant bipartisan support. Um, and it's a little bit too early to tell on that front. But to be fair, Rosenthal does have a lot of significant connections with Massachusetts Republicans. And I think they would probably need to use him as a tool to be able to have those conversations. And one of the things that you brought up, of course, is just how strange the the legal conversation around what the personal rights protected by the Second Amendment are here. You mentioned, of course, the Heller case in 2008, which, uh, which determined that a specific Washington, D.C. handgun ban was found unconstitutional. Um, it's been mostly quiet on the subject since then. Two things on that. Firstly, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about what Rosenthal said about the Heller decision, not actually including individuals. So Obama, Rosenthal, others all interpret Heller as a very constitutionally focused decision. So basically the court found that this Washington DC handgun ban was unconstitutional um, and said, that the Second Amendment of the Constitution protects the right to keep arms for self-defense. But 
the idea is that there's no individual right within the Second Amendment. And Scalia, when he wrote this decision, sort of left that door open. And the idea is like, well, you had a certain type of gun in 1776, not an AR-15. And the current weapons that exist aren't protected under the Second Amendment. And Scalia said that. Um, he said that you could put a reasonable restriction on guns. However, the NRA sort of took the lead of this decision and decided to say, well, individual gun ownership is completely protected, which is not what he said in the decision. And so that's when you start hearing in the past eight years, nine years, oh, I have the right to have my gun. I can have whichever gun I want. I can have a gun that fires 30 rounds in a minute, 100 rounds in a minute. And and I think the reason, of course, that this is also kind of coming to mind right now is is on Monday, the Supreme Court agreed to take up a case about whether the Constitution protects a right to carry outside the home uh, based on a New York statute. And in my reading of it, you know, this case has the potential to really damage one of the major ways that some states are able to regulate private firearm usage, where people applying for licenses have to basically show that they have some reason for needing a license to carry outside the home. Massachusetts, as you know, of course, is is one of those states where, you know, much of the discretion for approving licenses and permits comes down to local police departments, local licensing authorities. Um, but the statute sets these parameters on how long a licensing agency has to, you know, process and approve these these license applications. Now, the thing that's interesting, I think, obviously, on a Massachusetts side, when you're looking at this specific New York-based case that, that the Supreme Court is hearing is the licensing division uses a standard that's really similar to the one being challenged, which is basically the proper purpose standard, which means you may be awarded a permit to, for instance, shoot recreationally if you want to go shoot skeet or something or go shoot at a gun range, but you might be denied a license to carry for personal protection in public without a good reason. And of course, your reporting was mostly focused on the legislative angle of it. Is there anything that you're kind of hoping to keep an eye on in terms of national policy through the courts and the way that they're interpreting these decisions? So the Supreme Court case does leave the door open to further interpretation of the Second Amendment, which is something I think people need to be wary about, um, especially given the more conservative court that we have now. On a national level, the Bipartisan Background Checks Act of 2021 is being talked about and debated. Um, Biden has a series of executive actions related to mass shootings and um, background checks, and additionally, a loophole that allows sales if a background check isn't completed in three days. Locally, I would say the manufacturing of assault weapons bill but it seems like everything is really in flux. Um, I'm actually really interested to hear what Biden might have to say tonight. So I think that's something to definitely keep an eye out for. So that gives us something to watch. And unfortunately, this is all the time we've got. Um, but Sarah Bettencourt, friend of the pod, thanks for coming on the horse race to break this down for us. Thank you for having me. 
All right. Well, that brings us to our favorite segment. And based on our millions of listener reviews and minute by minute Nielsen ratings, your favorite segment, too. And that, of course, is the horse race trivia. So we here on the horse race, of course, talk a lot about official state stuff. And one of our longtime listeners, Ryan Naismith, asked the question of Twitter, which is always a bad idea. If we had an official state GIF or GIF, depending on your pronunciation preferences, what would it be? We amplified the question to our millions of social media followers because we have no shame whatsoever. Jen, what were some of the best responses that we got? I love that this gets kicked to me to try and describe moving images, uh, you know, <laughs> audibly. I will I think say, people will be familiar with them. It's true. We, I mean, we do, in fact, have the like famous Casey Affleck, uh, SNL, go back to Starbucks, uh, Duncan situation. Lots and lots of Duncan's representation. Um, so we got, and I got my donkey's representation from the back sites. We got go back to Starbucks. We also had uh, Dr. Nicholas Bauer ask, is there a compilation video of live starrowings? Oh. Of course, the, the annual tradition of moving trucks getting stuck under bridges on Starro Drive. So I think that would be a good gift. And if it doesn't exist, somebody should make it and submit it. I have to say, my favorite was Ari Fertig saying, dudes wandering into Walsh Presser gif. Uh, if you know, you know, it's that guy in the Bruins sweatshirt who walked into the Walsh press conference at the beginning of the pandemic. Top, top three funniest things I've ever seen in my life. I'm I'm confident in saying that. It's true. I personally deeply love, speaking of Walsh pressers, the, the one where a Boston Yeti just randomly was there <laughs> during the winter of 2015. I don't think anyone shouted this one out, but it is one that haunts my dreams. <laughs> And as it turns out, as a special treat to our listeners, we kept the reporter who got the very first on-the-record interview with the Boston Yeti. Sarah Betancourt is still with us here for this trivia segment. Tell us how that happened and what you talked about. Uh, So I had a day off and I was freelancing. It was in the middle of that massive snowstorm in 2015, where I think we had 112 inches total for the whole winter. And all the tea, the tea was totally shut down. So I really wanted to freelance and there was this guy going around sort of digging people out, the elderly, people in need, and people were taking pictures of him on Twitter and posting Boston Yeti here. So he was sort of this like snow day phenomenon. And I really wanted to interview him, but I saw he was declining a lot of interviews. So I sent him a picture on Twitter of me with a wooden Sasquatch in Vancouver (laughs) and said hey man is this your cousin and he was like oh my god that's like bob or bill from idaho last time i saw him he was unemployed and i was like hey by the way i'm sarah i'm a freelancer uh i would love to talk to you and then after that a bunch of other reporters jumped on and he started talking with them and i was like oh great this is saturated in boston media now so i called the times and the guardian and the guardian was like oh, this is hilarious. Like run with this. And we talked some more and he told me about his conditioning habits and no, it's not a costume, that sort of thing. (laughs) And there were many other fantastic contributions. So check out the Twitter thread. We highly recommend it. It's much better when you can look at the moving images and don't have to rely on our dulcet tones. But this week, we have a very special trivia question for you. In honor of our dear Stephanie's departure, we will continue to celebrate her next week. So we ask that you send us your favorite Stephanie Murray moments, media moments, favorite stories of her, best tweets, anything and everything goes. We're going to make her flee to D.C. with just 
our affection <laughs> nipping at her heels. I'm like bright red. It's got to be something about fever pitch. There has to be some fever pitch content next week. Yeah, that's true. We'll definitely get into uh, everyone's questionable taste in films, Boston related or otherwise. But I think that's all we have for this week, isn't it, folks? Yes, Jen, you're right. That's it. I am Steve Cazelli here for one more week with Stephanie Murray and with Jennifer Smith. Our producer, as always, is Libby Gormley. Make sure to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts to help boost our fragile egos and make us feel better about ourselves. And do sign up for the Politico Massachusetts Playbook if you're not subscribed. And give us a ring at the Massing Polling Group if you need polls done. But for now, that's all the time we have for this week. Thank you all for listening, and we will see you next week. Bye.